Ray Kube and Marcus settling in with a guest on this week's edition of The Imbalance History, the author of All the Leaves Are Brown, Scott Shea. Thanks for coming in and coming on. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the invite. It's great to have you on and to talk about a man that uh, we both grew up with in one aspect or another. My earliest memories of the mamas and the papas are my grandfather dancing me around as a little one to the mamas and the papas. <laughs> and I was a baby when it was new, so, you know, it brings back a lot of memories. And I know Ray's got some memories as well. I was a little older, so the music was the cool pop music that was coming out in 1966 and 67. Kind of sent me in the right direction, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Seems like pop music was a lot more palatable back then, but maybe I'm biased. What was your earliest experience with the Mamas and the Papas, and what sent you down the quote-unquote rabbit hole to <laughs> tell this story? Well, obviously, yeah, I heard them on the radio growing up. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 80s and the 90s, so... For me, it was oldies radio, but uh, my parents uh, had a pretty decent-sized record collection. It wasn't huge, but it had a lot of good stuff. And my mom had one of their greatest hits records. I mean, they put so many greatest hits albums out. And I remember the very first track was California Dreamin'. And that was a, a great song. It just really kicked the album off in the right way. It has such a timeless, kind of haunting sound to it, you know, especially that intro. And, you know, just hearing them on the radio. You couldn't go anywhere. You listen to any oldie station with an, having an hour pass by where without Monday, Monday or California Dreaming or I Saw Her Again or Dream a Little Dream of Me or, you know, anyone. They had about a dozen top 40 hits. So what set me down the rabbit hole was I, um, you know, I worked for the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM and I put together years ago, I was commissioned to write a documentary on Pope Francis when he was coming to the United States of America and we wanted to have some original content there. And my program director at the time saw in me my love of history and the ability to tell a story. So she had asked me to write the documentary and then it went over well. It was submitted for some awards. It didn't win anything, but, you know, they were very pleased with it and they asked me to do some more. I did one on Mother Teresa and Pope Benedict the 16th and we had all the good know, subjects right <laughs> yeah right well, it's rich it's a lot of stuff Top there. Shelf there you know it's good so and then we also had one on the history of our own channel when we were coming up on 10 year anniversary so i did that as well and wanted to write a book i really enjoyed the research aspect and talking to people you know about the subjects about interesting people and you know, uh, music is my first love, especially music from that era, 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s and the 90s. And I was reading a lot about uh, folk rock artists. I had read John Einerson's book on Gene Clark of the Birds and some books on Bob Dylan. I read Peter Ames Carlin's great book on uh, Paul Simon. And I was like, well, you know, I like to read about the John Phillips or the Mamas and the Papas. And, you know, went to go get a book and really couldn't find anything written in this century. Their bookshelf was very thin. John and Michelle had put out competing autobiographies in the mid-80s. And there was, you know, one biography, very like 200 pages long, which barely even scratches the surface. And there was a, an oral history. And all those things were great sources for my book, but I wanted to write a book on them that I would enjoy reading. So I figured here's my subject and let's get to work. And, uh, you know, it just it's such a great story that it really almost wrote itself. Well, I just want to say that you explain in your book the reason for all of those greatest hits packages that you were talking about when we first signed on. And that's part of it. The book is All the Leaves Are Brown, and it's from 
backbeat books. Is that right? Yeah, it's the imprint of Roman and Littlefield. It's the backbeat kind of specializes in uh, music biographies and just music in general. Well, to get right down to it, man, you were writing about one of the most insane, crazy, inhumane at times, often even, events in the music business. But there's a lot of good things that happened in there, so we can set that aside, right, for a moment anyway. One of the things that you did really well with this book, and folks, if you want to know how this happens, it's explained well in Scott's book. There's that time from between Elvis in the 50s and when the Beatles get there, when folk music is in vogue and everybody's trying to plug into that. We've talked about it with other people. We've talked about it on the podcast. And that moment you talk about where John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, before there's any Mamas or Papas besides him, I think, runs into Crosby and McGuinn, and I think it was John Sebastian at a folk club in Greenwich Village and looks at all that talent and can't believe that nobody's getting anywhere. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And you get into some of that in the book as well. But the intersections that happen, the way that things get explained so you understand how all the coins had to fall into all the slots for the mamas and the papas to end up in that place in time. For whatever it ends up being in the history and in your personal musical listening, What happened there in that period of time from then when they meet in the village and when they all end up in L.A., it's nuts. And some of it is, well, as a consumer of their products in the first generation, I'm disappointed to find out that the things that we had heard in limited amount in the press were far too shallow and nowhere near as graphic and real as the actual occurrences that were happening there in Bel Air and beyond. Hard to believe, isn't it? (laughs) now they're gonna read your book scott they're gonna be like what the (laughs) hell is coon talking about yeah i gotta see what this is all about yeah it really was it was you know like a perfect storm really well you know folk music the folk boom was really a place where a lot of those guys that you had mentioned retreated to they were young they were you know late teens early 20s in this time of their lives had been part of the first generation of rock and roll audience not necessarily the performers they were kids when elvis was on uh, sullivan and you know gene vincent was on steve allen's show you know all these uh, rock and roll was just really being born and by the late 50s and early 60s it had gotten a little bit corporate you know a lot of those early guys had retreated in one form or another whether it was forced you know like elvis going into the army Chuck Berry being in jail, Little Richard singing gospel. It's, it's been told time and time again. And it got a little polish to it with guys like Paul Anka and Bobby V and Bobby Rydell. And I like all that stuff. I love that music. I love the teen idol sound of the late 50s and early 60s. But I think it was off-putting to a lot of those guys and gals who came up during that time. And they retreated to folk music because that's kind of where the zeitgeist was. Folk music was always kind of considered leftist, kind of extreme. So, And it was a very conservative time. So it was just kind of a place where they could go and just kind of play around and not really be under the thumb of anybody and it started to grow because they were immensely talented next thing you know they got tv shows and jim mcguinn uh, before he became roger mcguinn is joining the chad mitchell trio and david crosby singing with gosh i don't even remember the, uh, the guy's name like art link letters folk group or something like that and john phillips uh, forms the journeyman and greenwich village is really the kind of the central hub of this it's kind of like San Francisco before, you know, the late 60s, you know, that's kind of where they all kind of gathered. And it was just kind of a a very libertine kind of area. And uh, they were able to just kind of stretch out there. But it was limited, like they were limited by themselves, because the thought of picking up an electric guitar or something was anathema, you know, that you just can't do that. Right, right. Man, and we just uh, did an episode about Dylan going electric at Newport. And that's 
story kind of filters through because of his influence on all the mm-hmm. stuff we're talking about. Well, yeah, he was super influential. He was kind of the guiding force in all of that. But he also, as a 20-year-old, crossed paths with John Phillips early in the scene. And I thought there would be more interaction between them because of maybe where Bob Dylan was in his life. He wasn't the king of the folk scene yet. He was an up-and-comer. And you didn't write about, really, I don't think, any interaction. Was there any known interaction between them? Do you know of any? Did did you hear stories of any? Yeah, there wasn't really too much interaction between them. I think the closest they came was because the journeyman only played Gertie's Folk City one time. Yeah, it was right when they were launching. Capitol Records got them in there. They did a week stand, and it was the week after Dylan had opened up for John Lee Hooker. So they were coming off of that. So it was a big time. Really, the journeyman moved to their management team was Frank uh, Werber and Renee Cardenas, and they were based in San Francisco. So after that, after their opening in Greenwich Village, they moved to the West and played The Hungry Eye about a month and just surrounding club scenes and they did that for about a year and that's where john met michelle and then they eventually came back to greenwich village and i think dylan's star was really starting to to rise and he was really kind of a cut above everybody at that time his star was really rising i know denny doherty had some run-ins with him but there was nothing really really substantial there i don't think their paths crossed too much you start Painting the paths, crossing, and part of what happens in your book, and you explain it really well, is how their individual life paths bring them together. The story of Denny and Cass and the Mugwumps and all that. And it's really in great detail for those of you who want to know about it. The sad part is the backdrop to a lot of it is just even for somebody who's a 70s 80s liberal okay i'm sitting here going wow man it was that drug addled it was that over the top it was a holy shit moment yeah it really was and it, it definitely contributed to the downfall and john was the worst of them all like it just took control over him you know in the 70s and you know the energy that he put into making music he eventually just put into trying to get high and recapturing that feeling, you know, that first time. Yeah, there was a a lot of dysfunction there that grew in together. And, and the intersection is really fascinating, you know, with Denny being in the Halifax Three and Cass being in the Big Three and, and the way they all kind of came together. If you're interested in just the music industry from the 50s throughout the entire 1960s and into the early 70s, you'll enjoy the book. Oh, you definitely gave a great feel for the industry as well. Let me ask you this because the vision I think that most people have of the mamas and the papas goes along with the happy-go-lucky folk hippie, you know, type of uh, progressive scene. But behind the scenes, it was a completely different story. Did you get uncomfortable finding out the stuff you found out at any time? And did you leave any parts out because they didn't fit with the story, but still made you uncomfortable? I won't, wouldn't say I, you know, I was uncomfortable. You know, I pretty much knew the story. I had, you know, believe it or not, they VH1 had put out a behind the music back in the late nineties. It did a pretty good job. You know, a lot of that stuff gets left on the cutting room floor. And that's my problem with, you know, TVs and documentaries. You can't put everything in there. You can do that more with a book, but they're really a podcast or a podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Or a podcast. You know, 
Obviously, there's things you have to leave out, you know, but mostly minutia, nothing that is really going and that's really going to, you know, pivot or turn the story. I think everything that's really substantial that impacted them is included. No, I didn't really feel didn't feel uncomfortable. I have two kids, so you mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, are they going to read this one day? But the one thing I didn't do is I didn't sensationalize it. I analyzed it because it's part of their story. I think we're past the point of sex and drugs in the 1960s being shocking. You know, I, at least I like to think we are. Um, <gasps> Uh, you know, so now it's kind of time for reflection and taking an analytical approach. And, yeah. and that's kind of what I did. Historical In, context, so to, to speak. From the 60s into the 70s, that party culture rolled into cocaine and swinging parties in the suburbs. So, yeah, we're coming up on the anniversary of the Tate LaBianca murders, you know, and uh, yeah. that was John and Michelle and all of them. They were right there in the center of that, you know, bouncing from house to house and hanging out at all those places, including Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski's home. You also capture well the time right around there when all that's happening and how close it is to their circle. The level of the drug use, the weirdness of it all. A lot of people have done their share of whatever, right? You don't hurt anybody. I don't think it's a big deal. Whatever people want to do, right? That's kind of my view. But even I have to sit there and look at the level of it. And Marcus, we've talked about this before about artists being warned about the dangers of traveling with drugs internationally. One of those people makes their way into your book and Janis Joplin, right? You do a great job of telling people how the whole festival at Monterey happened in 67, how all the pieces came together and the battles within and from without, and sometimes both within and without all (laughs) on the same day that really could have derailed that whole thing, which ended up being such a landmark festival. Yeah. It's something I really wanted to do. I didn't really feel like there was one area that kind of did a deep analysis of that show. And that was something that really kind of surprised me is researching that and finding out how all that came together. You know, a lot of it was through I was able to get a hold. A book on Monterey published like almost like a diary that Derek Taylor had written about his interaction approaching John and Phillips and Michelle Phillips. And it was really fascinating. And Derek Taylor was a he was a press agent. He had worked with Brian Epstein and and working with the Beatles. And then he came over to Los Angeles in 65 and took over as the Birds publicist. And he was kind of recruited by these two guys, Alan Parasir and Ben Shapiro, to approach John Phillips about the Monterey Pop Festival, which their vision was different from what eventually became. John kind of commandeered it and made it the incredible pop festival that we now look back on every year and is the granddaddy of all pop festivals. Anything that is that size and scale, a lot of politics start coming in and a lot of people, uh, egos and stuff like that, Pete Townsend and Jimi Hendrix kind of squaring off there. Good details (laughs) in the book. Good details in the book. All the leaves are brown. Make sure you get it and read all about Monterey in there. I'm telling you the things that I've learned just about that surprised me because we're always learning. But when we find out the deep stuff about stuff that we know a little about, it's always exciting. And that's why we're so excited to have you with us. Scott Shea on the podcast this week. We'll be right back with more from Scott Shea about his incredible book, All the Leaves Are Brown, How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart. You know, Marcus's summer fun winds down. You know what never stops? What? The fun and games and the great brews at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro. Always something good on the board and always something fun happening on stage, too. Yeah, Crooked Eye is very active on social media. So if you're looking for a cool place that has good beers to hang out at, 
Check out their Facebook page. Crooked Eye Brewery has a lot of activities going on. Good beers, live music. It's all there. All kinds of good entertainment on stage. And, of course, the Crooked Eye Band, second Saturday of every month. Packing the house and rocking it right there in the heart of Hatboro. Always a good friend to be made at Crooked Eye Brewery. In that heightened presence on Facebook, you will find a lot of posts about what's just going up on the board and a lot of fresh board posts lately with all kinds of different stuff. Jeff's always trying something different back in the brew room. Go ahead and find out what we're talking about. It's Crooked Eye Brewery at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hapro in Pennsylvania. Tell a friend. Stop on by and make a friend. Swing by and make it a Crooked Eye. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we are back with Scott Shea, author of All the Leaves Are Brown, How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart. A fascinating read and maybe even a story you don't expect. Going back to as the storm was in the early days of building, they were on a tropical island and enjoying themselves. Did you have to interview a lot of people to get some of those details of the story out? And were those people easily accessible for you for this book? Not for that particular part of their story. You know, Michelle, when I started writing this book, I was unsigned and unagented, as they say in the business. <laughs> so I could not get a hold of Michelle for anything. But a lot of that had been written about in John and Michelle's autobiographies in the 80s. And I was able to talk to a guy, a musician from down there. His name escapes me at the moment, but he put out an album in the late 60s called South Atlantic Blues. And uh, he was part of that scene. He grew up in the U.S. Virgin Islands. This is where this all took place. So what happened was, you know, it was after the Beatles had kind of came and eviscerated the folk music scene, and uh, John had reformed the Journeyman as the new Journeyman, you know, right, very original. that part, right. Very yeah. original name there. And he included Michelle in the band, and that's where Denny kind of joined them. 
and their gigs really started to dry up and uh, John had stashed up a whole bunch of money and they decided to take a trip to the Virgin Islands and they wanted to go there just to just kind of and John had done this before it's just to go to a tropical climate and just kind of refresh and just regroup and think what are we going to do here you know John was still wanted to do a full- very 60s thing to go and do you know yeah absolutely cool. and John was really wanted to do something with folk music but everybody kind of saw the writing on the wall like hey man folk music is dead what we've been doing that doesn't exist anymore you know it exists in pockets peter paul and mary and tim harden you know people like that everybody else wanted to go into rock and roll so they go down there to just kind of recharge and uh yeah it's a crazy scene you know what i did was i i just kind of relied on stories from the time i uh, was able to find an article written by uh, somebody who lived there and just kind of described what the whole scene was how it was really kind of small town america in the virgin islands at that time and but again there was a really kind of a wild scene there just people were just kind of more colorful and uh, a little more flamboyant down mm-hmm. in those in those tropical areas so they didn't necessarily not fit in that's kind of where their image came from because they started to get really poor down there and run out of money so yeah. oh, they became more and more disheveled looking uh, which is it kind of became came the hippie look, you know, the dirty jeans and stinky and t- hippies. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the torn t-shirts and and things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, but Scott no, Fag- no, Scott, Scott I, just Fag- got, I just got a note from our research team just and I was waiting <laughs> for the right place to tell you. South Atlantic Blues is an album by Scott Fagan. Yeah. He got more information for us, but there you go. Our yeah, he was his team back from vacation, Marcus, and working overtime right in the middle of the episode. Good job, research team. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, there was a small but vibrant music scene there in St. Thomas. The Mamas and the Papas then they weren't known that is them, but but we you know John and Denny and and Michelle and eventually Cass and a bunch of and you know maybe about a dozen other friends of theirs you know had gravitated from St John's which was kind of like a campground over to St Thomas because that's where there was a music scene and they needed money and well, they were all musicians so they approached a guy named Duffy who ran his club that was named after himself which was kind of empty it was upstairs from a much larger club called Sparky's which was very vibrant and that's where Scott Fagan had played with his group the Urchins the year before <laughs> so he was able to give me some really good content of what that uh, cool. what that whole scene was like you know and he wasn't there when the mamas and the papas he was actually working with doc pomus over in in new york at that time but um you know he uh was able to uh, really tell me firsthand accounts of the mamas and the papas that he got his time because he did eventually move back there is that the island and the time when they came up with creaky alley later about john and mitchie were getting kind of itchy just to leave the folk music behind Saul and Denny working for a penny, trying to get a fish on the line. In a coffee house, Sebastian sat, and after every number, they passed the hat. McQuinn and McGuire's just a getting higher in L.A., you know where that's at. And no one's getting fat except Mama Cass. Yeah, Creaky Alley is a place there. It's actually a little alleyway that kind of gives the side entrance to Sparky's waterfront and to Duffy's. And uh, yeah, that's uh, really the inspiration behind the title. And they do talk about it a little bit in the song. Mitchie wants to go to the sea. Well, that kind of underlines one of the issues I guess people might have with the story. People always say, well, that was the times you got to understand. But the degree to which people gave Cass a load of shit about her weight was pretty unbelievable it was so open 
And I never knew that John was against her being in the group at first. And he was really reluctant all the way through. I also kind of remember as a kid, the whole Michelle leaving and another mama and all that stuff with Jill. But you really brought it all together. All those little pieces of my little nine, <laughs> ten-year-old brain are all going, oh, yeah, that's what it was. And then, of course, you know, the scenes that you described going on as part of all of it's like, yeah, and that's more out of hand than I thought it was, too. And John, he really didn't want her in. I've gotten feedback. A lot of people didn't really know that and you know because john's vision like i said before you know he wanted to continue with folk music so it's some way or form it may be an updated version of it maybe a little bit electric you know uh kind of like peter paul and mary because peter paul and mary had survived the beatles you know they were still making hit records and they were still very much revered and were kind of the uh the mouthpieces or the voice of the young progressive side i should say they played every kind of concert that had any kind of political overtone or undertone to it and he wanted to go with that you know he had a pretty blonde and his wife michelle he had a handsome tenor and denny and you know he was the musicologist of the group he could put the songs together so oh he was very full of himself wasn't he (laughs) he was but he was a very talented musician and he didn't see a place for Cass, and he didn't like her. Most people who met Cass back in those days just fell in love with her personality almost instantly, but he didn't. He didn't like her, thought she was too assertive, too aggressive. He was the alpha dog in the group, and he wasn't going to have anybody challenge him on that, you know? And, you know, eventually he was forced to submit when they went to the West Coast and started to audition, and she would accompany them and eventually sing along. And Lou Adler was just like, it's got to be the four of you. And her voice just lifts everybody up. You know, if you ever hear a, you know, a really talented the singer singing with a bunch of other people who are decent it really lifts up the sound incredibly and she did that she's probably one of the best vocalists of that generation absolutely he's scott shea the book is all the leaves are brown it's all about the uh, coming together and then falling apart of the mamas and the papas you brought up lou adler and his role in this is key when you look at the artists who end up on dunhill and then abc dunhill in addition to the mamas and the papas, it's pretty impressive. A great producer who later in life finally got the real recognition that he deserved. I don't think he was too worried about it because he'd helped all these artists to get their dreams and to leave a lasting impression on the American musical landscape. And when you think of ABC Dunhill, you think of a sound, you think of an artist list. And I'm looking at it right now and it's still like, wow, it just blows me away. Yeah, and then he started Ode Records after that uh, when he left uh, Dunhill. And then, with you know, Carol King right, to start, Carole right? King. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he was a real uh, artist producer, you know. I mean, he chewed up and spit out his fair share, but I would say he's kind of like the West Coast Clive Davis, and he really got into the music. I think really John Phillips and the Mamas and the Papas really kind of brought him in to that side a little bit more, because he was a little bit more corporate before that. You know, I talk about it in the book with Eve of Destruction. That song uh, really broke out his label, but at a cost, because it was a very anti-war song during a not very anti-war time. It was right at the start of uh, the Vietnam War. And scared them to death and scared his partners to death. And it was really, it was the ultimate DIY hit. It wasn't meant to be. It was released to a radio station, really, without anybody's approval, you know. And Wink Martindale started playing it on the radio there, KLIF in Los Angeles. And just, it really started to take off. And that's really what opened the door for the Mamas and the Papas. And I think, you know, his friendship with John really kind of transformed him and made him the guy that we kind of know today, you know, with the beard and the beanie. And Marcus, we've We've talked so much about the Wrecking Crew and their role in so many groups' records, like 
the mamas and the papas. And a lot of the connections are made through Lou and through Dunhill. In fact, how Blaine's solo stuff was issued there. Jimmy Buffett, you know, Cass and Danny, their solo albums came out on Dunhill. They made sure they had it all working, the grassroots. Steppenwolf. Yeah, to keep it going, right? <laughs> yeah. They kept getting artists that were relevant and kept going. Yeah, it was very cutting edge. It was a very cutting edge label. Three Dog Night, another one. Mm-hmm. Just kept them going into the 70s, especially, you know, Three Dog Night and the grassroots. You know, that was really even without Lou because he had sold the label by then, but and they kind of retained him for the Mamas and the Papas. But then as the Mamas and the Papas fizzled out, he started Ode Records and just gave that his full attention. And, you know, any producer of note, like Lou will tell you, you find your comfort spot in a group like the Mamas and the Papas was right in the pocket. He had the studio he wanted, the uh, wrecking crew for a source for backing musicians. So anything he could think of, they could create. And then, of course, out front was this guy and his friends who were just driven to make great music. The inspiration is explained for all your favorite Mamas and the Papas songs in the book, All the Leaves Are Brown, which indicates fall, which indicates New York, which is where California dreaming kind of starts. All the leaves are brown. Yeah, that is uh, that is where the song came together. And it was a couple of years before it was even recorded. John was in the Journeyman. He was leading the Journeyman, and, and he and Michelle were married. It was a February day in uh, 1963, and uh, it was a very cold day. In fact, you know, I was able to, through studying old weather charts, I was kind of able to kind of pinpoint the day into which this was written because, you know, I grew up in New Jersey in the shadows of New York City. John and multiple people had said that the temperature got into the negatives, and it doesn't get into the negatives that often in this area. It'll get down into the 20s, you know, into the high teens, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it's not like Minnesota where, you know, you hit negative 10 and you're there for a while, you know. So, uh, you know, I was able to find a day in February where it actually got to like negative two or three degrees. And I said, that's got to be it, you know. So it was cold and there was a snowfall. And then they decided to take a walk. And Michelle had grown up in California, Los Angeles, and Mexico City. She spent some time in Mexico City as a child and just knew warmth. And she'd never really seen snow before, experienced the cold. So she wanted to take a walk in it. Problem was she didn't know really how to dress properly for it. So she just threw on a pair of jeans and some shoes and had like a tank top on that she threw a coat on over. They didn't get very far until they started to get cold. And, you know, so they found a church <laughs> that they passed along the way, and, which was old St. Patrick's Cathedral down on Moss Street. And she had a penchant for Catholic churches. She had grown up in Mexico City and had a lot of friends who were Catholic. She wasn't religious herself, but she'd stay over their houses and going to mass the next morning was always something they would do. And so she had an affection for the architecture and the smell of the incense and all that stuff. So she went inside to warm up. And later that night, John was writing. He was popping pills, you know, going out of his mind, writing songs. And he had a very strong circadian rhythm. So he liked to pull people in. You know, hey, if you help me write this song, I'll give you half of it. If you change a word or two, I'll give half of it to you, as Waylon Jennings once said in a song. 
so he gets her out of bed to help him write the song because he's on a roll. You know, he writes all the leaves are brown and the sky is gray. And so she comes in groggy and starts writing the lyrics down for him. And then she starts to help him write it because she knows what he's talking about. She's talking about their stroll through New York City. And she came up with that line, uh, you know, the, the second stanza. Stopped into a church I passed along the way. And they tied the whole thing together and John stowed it away. Stopped into a church I passed along the way He was always going up to the Brill Building, which is where a lot of music publishers uh, lived. It was kind of the new Tin Pan Alley. So he would go up there to try to sell music. You know, he was a folk purist through and through, except for when it came to you know, trying to sell his songs. But mostly unsuccessful. But he kept that one away. He knew it was special, tucked it away. And then when they were looking after John agreed to give rock and roll a try, he pulled that out. He pulled out Monday Monday, which he had written. Same year, 63, Go Where You Want to Go. He had built up quite a treasure trove of songs. And Michelle was a, a fantastic muse because, uh, you know, she had quite a, a track record of, <laughs> of misbehavior in her marriage. And it just drove John crazy and gave us some of the greatest songs of that era. John was much the same before he met Michelle. So it's full circle and karma's kind of getting him in a way. Oh, yeah. And while they did have explosive chemistry, they also had explosive personalities. And like her comment when they fire her and she lived to regret that. And I don't know, those two. John and Michelle didn't seem to you, Marcus, that they could just go on and on fighting like that forever until they didn't. Absolutely. But it also seemed that John and Susie were going to go on forever and forever. Her just accepting how he was. And then Michelle. That's happened. a whole nother yeah. hour, man. I that whole <laughs> thing really, you know, and the fact that she's part of the Adams family, not the people who had lurched the butler, the right. people who were presidents and that her family, you know, put up with so much and her kids and oh my goodness, the whole, the whole thing. It's just like, Oh, yeah, it's funny because I didn't even really get to scratch the surface of that with the book. I mean, I, I gave some examples. After the book was out and had been published already, I sent a copy to Dick Weissman, who helped me with a lot of the research on this for John because he was his bandmate in The Journeyman. Right. And, you know, he's a walking encyclopedia on John Phillips. And he sent me a list of the women that John cheated on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> during his is first it, is marriage. Is it safely tucked away? <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, for a rewrite, maybe for a revision, you know. But uh, I was like, geez, Dick, why did you tell me this while I was 
writing it, you know, <laughs> you know, I guess didn't want to get uh, too deep into it. It's pretty impressive. If you know what I mean? Like famous people. Like, yes. Like well-known suitors that might have been married at that time as well. Well, they were probably, you know, if I said some of their names, which I'm not on the show, but that's good. Uh, if I let you know who they were, you might not know them by name, but if I tell you who they are and where you would know them from, you'd be like, Oh yes, I know her. We're good at that game. So be careful. <laughs> yeah, be careful. Uh, we're not talking Will Chamberlain numbers though. No, right? no, 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 no. Okay. Wow. That part always kind of was there in the news, even though the news sucked by today's comparison, right? Back in the 60s and even in the 70s, there was no instantaneous news. We didn't know what we didn't know. Right. But now knowing it because of your book, Maron, as they say in Jersey. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really kind of the book I wanted to write. I like peeling back the layers and just trying to get into it and being able to tell it in a, in a fun way, which is why I wrote it in narrative nonfiction, because it reads a little bit more like a novel almost. Those are the types of books I like to read. I like biographies that are written in narrative nonfiction, because to me, it, it moves along a little bit better than making it sound like you're reading like a newspaper article. What did you learn about yourself? What was the most important thing or the most striking or revealing thing you learned about yourself during the research and writing of this book? Well, the fact that I could write a book, you know, <laughs> you know that's that was putting I never that knew one I had on the that board for you, Scott. <laughs> putting that one up there. When you're writing it, you're like, "Am I going to run out of gas?" Being able to kind of piece it all together and sort it out. Writing is really kind of like sculpting, at least the way I look at it. You know, you get this mold of play and you're trying to make it into something. And I must have read and reread every chapter a hundred times, you know, and just trying to get that perfect shape to it. And just being able to have the discipline to do that and to stick with it. And especially with a story like this, because a story like this is just, to me, it's incredible that it was never really written before. I mean, it's been told. It's been told in everything from a three and a half minute song called Creaky Alley to VH1's Behind the Music to any documentary. Michelle and John's books, which are good, but they don't really get into the whole story. You don't hear Denny's story. You don't hear Cass's story from them. So, yeah, I was really surprised that, that nobody had done this before. And, you know, while I was writing it, I was kind of worried, well, maybe something will come out while I'm writing it. I just got to throw this whole thing away. But, you know, the stick to the perseverance in, in writing it, that was the personal thing that I gleaned from it. I'm continuing to do it because I'm uh, in the middle of writing my second book now. And what's that about? I had mentioned his name earlier. I'm writing about Waylon Jennings, particularly the first 15 years of his career. I like to focus on a certain period of time. I don't want to do like, you know, a whole biography on him because there's a biography out there. He wrote his autobiography. I really want to try to just focus on that time uh, from... His early life, obviously, but then his career, which started in 1959, and then 15 years later, he became an overnight sensation. <laughs> you <Yeah>, that's <know>? true. <laughs> so, <laughs> from Buddy Holly to becoming an outlaw, there's just a lot of great material in there. And the thing that it gets me about interesting about me, there's a lot of dark periods. I'm not saying dark like John Phillips dark. I'm saying dark like it's just unknown. It's mm -hmm. like he doesn't even talk about it in his book. Nobody's written about it. Where was he in 61, early 62? Just trying to figure it all out. It's a mystery, and uh, I'm going to crack it. <laughs> well, we're going to have to have you back to talk about that when it comes out, Scott. Oh, for we're sure. I'll send you a copy. And, and we um, studied the whole Holly Crash thing a little bit. It'd be good to talk to you and see what you've learned about that between here and there, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One final question I have for you is, did anybody from any of the Mamas and the Papas camp read the book and get back to you about the book after it was written? One person has, yes. And that would be Cass's daughter, and she's not a fan. <laughs> did she say why she wasn't a fan? I had written about Cass 
taking drugs while she was pregnant, which Cass freely admitted to. And she kind of took issue with that a little bit, you know, and I get it. It's her mom. Her mom died when she was six, seven years old and wants to be protective of her mother's name. But I don't think my book really besmirches Cass. I think it really paints her as a strong figure and also a sympathetic figure, you know, that people love. That's one thing I've learned doing these interviews is people just still love Cass mm-hmm. Elliott. I mean, she just is a transformative superstar, you know, to this day. The number of people who love Cass Elliott, I mean, she's still hugely popular on TikTok, you know, her videos uh, of make your own kind of music which wasn't even really a big hit in its day, is a hit there. You know, people Mm -hmm. make videos with it all the time. You know, I did speak a little bit with Jeffrey Phillips when I was writing the book. That's John's oldest son from his first marriage. And he gave me a little bit, not a whole lot of information, but he was very friendly and uh, tried to be helpful as much. But as far as anybody else, I have not heard from him. We've been talking about some of the drama and all that kind of stuff between the papas and the mamas. Let's talk about the music a little bit. California Dream and we kind of covered, but there's so many songs that they had that were immediately indicative of the times. If you hear some of those songs, you know it's 1967, 68. What are your favorites? Oh, man, uh, I got a few. I mean, California Dreaming is of that really first golden era to name check their uh, first greatest hits package. That song is just incredible. It just gives you a full vision of the 60s from the opening line until the end. You you think about like my son is 16 years old. He says when he hears that song, he thinks of the images he's seen of like Vietnam, you know, and the same thing with me. It also brings back good summer memories of my youth. One of my favorite tracks is from their fifth album, which is the much maligned reunion album called People Like Us. It was uh, Snow Queen of Texas. It's just a beautiful song that John, John wrote all those songs really quickly, but they're so poetic and they're so beautiful. And I really think it's an underrated album. I think it's great. Problem with that album was John really mixed Cass out of it for whatever reason. I don't know if he was jealous of her or angry or. Snow Queen of Texas left Paris in a cloud of smoke. They say she may be beaten, but I know that she's not broke. Living in a cool green farmhouse If you go to Houston Be quiet as a mouse I don't know if you guys have ever talked about the birds on your show, but they did the same thing around the same time. Maybe a couple of years later, the original five reunited for a reunion. It was a reunion album. And David Crosby produced it because he was the superstar in 1973, right? He's Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young. And he mixes McGuinn's Rickenbacker right off the record. I mean, you can barely even hear it. And I think there's strong songs on that album as well. But it's just like the birds, the mamas and the papas, you got no cast you, or you don't hear cast. You hear most Mostly Denny and Michelle. You're like, well, where's Cass? <laughs> you know, it's, she's the hallmark of their sound. It's just, I think it really 
killed that album from the get-go. And, you know, about seven years ago, Universal Music issued an anthology of the Mamas and the Papas. And somebody, I don't know who, remixed that whole album and brought Cass's vocals up into it. And it's refreshing, you know. And for some songs, it really works. Like Snow Queen of Texas sounds much better. It's a crisper arrangement on that. You hear Cass and it's very pleasant. Snow Queen of Texas left Paris in a cloud of smoke. There are some songs where I like John's original mix better, but I think there's so many great songs on that album. You know, he went away from what people expect, which is what you got to do in 1971. You don't want to make a record in 1971 that sounds like 1966 because it's not going to work. You know, just like Springsteen didn't make, you know, a song that sounded like his second album during the Born in the USA because it's just, you know, it's just not going to work. Right. And same thing with like Genesis. They're not going to do. 20 minute art songs like with Peter Gabriel in the 80s and be relevant. So he got away from the wrecking crew and Western recorders and he went to another smaller studio, brought in a bunch of ex Motown session players and some jazz musicians and just gave it an updated musical sound. And I think it really works. I think it would work better had he just not mix Cass out and maybe record it in the tree. He did this weird thing where he recorded everybody on separate vocal tracks so he could play around with it in the multi-track, but it kind of backfired on it. If it doesn't sync up, right, you got to go do it again. You got to cut that person all over again. And I know it gave the four musicians or the three singers just fits, but somehow it all came together. I think it's a pleasant album. And so I would say Snow Queen of Texas, California Dreaming. There's a couple of the songs. The entire second album is great. I love No Salt on Her Tail. It's the, the lead-off track. Mm-hmm. In fact, in fact, if you want to look, there's a uh, on The Strange Brew, which is a, a, a UK uh, music site. They asked me to write an article on the top five deep cuts of the Mamas and the Papas. And if you go to my uh, website, scottsheaauthor.com, Shea is S-H-E-A, you can go to the articles and you'll see it in there. And I give five cool deep tracks and just a little explanation of all of them. You brought up the birds. And one of the things that I learned in your book was the role of Gene Clark. Ah, yes. As a cuckold in the relationship (laughs) between John and Michelle, that was explosive. That's the kind of stuff that was explosive beyond what any normal realm of expectations to handle or deal with. Just over the top crazy. And there's a lot of that in the book. Now, Scott, you don't seem like the kind of guy who's going to go out drinking and whoring with John Phillips. So I give you extra credit, if you're still into that kind of thing, for being able to get in there amongst the pills and the the booze and all the other stuff to tell the true story. And it's not an easy one to read if you're an old fan like me or a younger fan like you and Marcus. It's just the truth, though. 
Yeah, I've definitely never been into that. Uh, it's not my thing, but if you can tell, but you know, it, it does fascinate me. And it just, you know, and the, the story of not only just rock and roll, but popular music is just littered with that, you know, especially in the 20th century. But uh, yeah, Gene Clark, he was quite a figure. He was really an intense guy. You know, on the one hand, he's got this guilt about cheating with John Phillips's wife. And then on the other hand, he just decides to brazenly show up at the concert, sit front and center in a bright red shirt, you know, and and have Michelle uh, blow kisses at him, which kind of blew the whole thing up. And that's when John ended up firing her from the band and bringing in Jill Gibson for a couple months, which just ultimately didn't pan out because I said this in a lot of interviews that the Mamas and the Papas is more than just four people that you can just plug and play. It's a collective experience. You know, it was their friendship, the things they went through together, being in folk bands and going to the Virgin Islands and driving from New York to California to try to make a go of it and rock and roll. And Jill just wasn't part of that. And as talented as she was, because she was a musician, she was Jan Barry's ex-girlfriend. She played on a lot of Jan and Dean. She had played on a lot of their sessions, wrote some of their songs even a couple of hits, had a record of her own that Jan had produced and was an ex-model, an ex-blonde model. So she is seemingly on paper would fit in, right? But it just didn't work. They brought Michelle back. Michelle had an edge to her that Jill or I don't think anybody else out there would have. So it was a failed experiment, but uh, nevertheless fascinating and just another fascinating facet of their story. It's a mind blower, man. It really is. One of the things about the music is that I was surprised that there was such a dry spell. And maybe it was because John got focused on Monterey more than he should have been and didn't have time to write songs and do all that. But the guy, when he set his mind to it, could really turn out a song and he knew just what to say to make things flow. Got to give him credit on that. And he was a pretty good producer too. Yeah, you know, I liken him a lot to Brian Wilson because you know he and Brian are similar in that growing up, they weren't so much into rock and roll as they were into harmony singing. You know, Brian was into the Four Freshmen and John was into the High Lows and a few other groups like that. They brought that with them to their rock and roll experiences. And it lent to the way they arranged music and were able to arrange voices and find the strengths and weaknesses of each individual voice and put them together to make a really nice sound. And the only difference was Brian Wilson was much more prolific. And it seems like much more together in the studio, if you can believe that. But John did dry out, you know, I think... Eventually, he got to the point where he just accepted Michelle as she was and that she wasn't going to change and that he was going to move on from her and she didn't inspire his writing. And as you said, he got into Monterey. And the thing with Monterey was as John brought in all these cutting edge acts, all the San Francisco groups, the Grateful Dead, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Big Brother and the Golden Company, Jefferson Airplane. And then he brought in The Who and the Jimi Hendrix Experience from the UK and Otis Redding. It just set up what came later in 68 and 69, you know, with these power trios like Cream and Jimi Hendrix and later Led Zeppelin and all these other groups. And the Mamas and the Papas struggled to find a footing in that new environment of pop music. And, you know, any group that sang Harmony was now kind of looked on as passe. That included the Mamas and the Papas. It included the Beach Boys, included the Four Seasons. They were too good, Scott. They were too good. (laughs) Yeah, right. You know, come the early 70s, you get this oldies revival and the Beach Boys and the Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons are able to bounce back. But the Mamas and the Papas, they didn't. They were kind of done with each other and just didn't make a go of it. And not only did they dry out, but really even in their solo careers, with the exception of Cass, but, you know, Cass didn't really make rock and roll records in her solo career. She made kind of bubblegum 70s 
sounding records, you know, maybe with the exception of that album she did with Dave Mason. And, uh, you know, she was really into Broadway and show tunes and that sound. And that's really where she went. And I think had she lived, uh, you know, music probably would have taken a backseat to being like a talk show host or something because, you know, she was really making the rounds, you know, on Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin and Johnny Carson and was really finding a footing there. But do you think with her vocal talents and her training, her father was totally into opera, both her parents were singers, she could have also possibly sang on Broadway? Oh, she could have. That was where she first tried to start her career. She auditioned in 61 or 62 for I Can Get It For You Wholesale for the role of Miss Marmelstein, which was Barbara Streisand's breakout role. And she got pretty far along in the audition process, you know, and for her unconventional looks, that's really saying something. But yeah, and she did go on with the touring company of the Music Man and Forrest Tucker. Mm-hmm. And so and then her father passed away yeah. unexpectedly and, and she had to go home. And, and yeah. that's how she met Tim Rose and got mm-hmm. into the Falcon scene. But, but yeah, I think with her star as high as it was, even by the time she had passed away, mm-hmm. uh, some Broadway producer would have said, come on, be in the show, you know love to have you it would have been way ahead of the trend of that happening too you know yeah for sure mama cass's story is very fascinating i know you had mentioned that post the mamas and the papas you thought that she would be able to uh possibly you know do a talk show host but i didn't know if you thought that maybe she would be interested in getting back into broadway or trying the opera or anything in that route as well so that's where i was going with that question yeah i think so because you know right before she died she was doing a two-week stand in london i think it was the royal albert hall and you know and her show was very if you listen you know she put out that live album in like 72 or 73 and it's very Broadway-ish you know a very show tune kind of thing I don't know what the set list was you know on on her final concerts but it was probably very similar to what she put out on that uh, Don't Call Me Mama Anymore album and for sure I think that's something she would have absolutely relished and had done if somebody approached her and I think that probably would have been inevitable Once again he is Scott Shea the book All the Leaves Are Brown on Backbeat Press or Books is it? Backbeat books, yeah. Backbeat books. I like that. The the, the, the <laughs> double backbeat, B. Backbeat books. But you can find it anywhere easily on Amazon. As soon as I typed in all the leaves, your book popped up. Just so you know, <laughs> on Amazon, man, that's good. That is good. That is good. Thanks for being our guest here and sharing all about your book, folks. Go get it and read it. We just did. There's so much in there. Yeah, a lot of details. Could you also give out your uh, website information, your social media information as well, so people can uh, keep up with you and follow you? Oh, yes, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, ScottSheaAuthor.com is the website. Shea is spelled S-H-E-A. And that will give you links to where you can buy the book. Also links to all my socials. And I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and TikTok. And it's all Scott Shea Author. And the one thing about my socials is I try to do something different on each one. So let's make it a little bit more enjoyable for the whatever they call them, viewers or watchers. Or, you know. The listeners. And you can get it by clicking through to the information part of the app where you found this episode, too. Thanks for coming, man. And I guess we're going to have you back when the new book comes out, right? Absolutely. I'll send you guys copies. Hopefully that'll be uh, sometime down the road, you know, but not too far. But you'll definitely be on my list. Take your time. (laughs) I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you. Hey, you bet. Thank you. And thank you for writing such a fun book to read and a dark book, too. Wow, what a great rock and roll story. And what a cool guy. Scott Shea, our guest here on The Imbalance History. Listen, we always solicit your feedback. 
Tell them how they can be in touch, Marcus, if they want to weigh in on all the stuff we just discussed about the mamas and the papas and everybody else. Feel free to email us, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Threads, and Instagram, all under the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Just search for Imbalanced History anywhere you'll find us. Well, that's going to do it for this episode, all about the mamas and the papas and the whole scene. And uh, thanks to Scott Shea for coming on and talking about his book, All the Leaves Are Brown. Till the next time we crack the mics in Dark Doc Media Studios, I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.